All right, so there. I, yeah, it says it is recording me now, and I'm getting little boom, boom, booms. So hopefully I won't say anything incriminating. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ad Nerdium for our second stasis chamber. Uh, with a bit more technical difficulties, we're going to try to record this again, uh, but hopefully this time we'll get it through. Doing pretty good, Patrick. With me today, uh, returning, is Dr. Laura E. Gooden and the Kate of many names, Kate McLaughlin, Kate Kessler, and Kate Smith. Also is my co-producer, Will Roach. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good, thanks. It's good. It's good to have you all back. Good to try this again. Seeing seeing your lovely faces this time around. Getting to have this great conversation. So this month was NaNoWriMo. And by the time this comes out... Hey guys, Future Patrick here. By now you've probably realized this episode was recorded a while ago. If you hear us mentioning times or events, we recorded this take on November 25th, 2020. Anyway... Back to the episode. So I was thinking to start, maybe our two esteemed writers would, wouldn't would mind sharing with us how their NaNoWriMo went this time around. I'm almost at 50,000. Yeah. I'm impressed. Mine was a complete dumpster fire. Well, Laura, I'm on deadline, so it's not really quite fair. Um, I have a book due next month, so it has to be written. So it's not like I'm just like, oh, I'm going to go see if I can write 50,000 words this month, right? It was, it it's was your like, job. I have to or I don't get paid. Yeah. <laughs> so. For me, I don't get paid that much. I think my royalty check for the first half of the year was $15. Uh, so, yeah, I can't, sometimes I just can't devote the time I want to yeah. 50,000 words. And that's that's art. That's the way it mm. goes. And... When we when we live in a capitalist society that doesn't value art properly, this is this is what we suffer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When you have people saying, "Can't you do that for free?" Uh, or do because you, know, you love your it. Stuff up. Yeah. 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 And in fact, uh, we well, do I, do it because we love, love a paycheck it. too. Beg your pardon. Well, that's why we do it. That's not why. That's a, that's why we do it. That's not why we share it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although I'm always oh, hoping I'm gonna monetize my dreams. <laughs> I was hoping <laughs> I I gave up thinking about the money quite a long time ago, but I'm I'm always kind of hoping that what I send out into the world is actually going to make a genuine difference to someone you know, I I look at frontline responders and mm-hmm. and other medical professionals and, and I look at um teachers and people who do the work that I consider to be jaw droppingly important. And sometimes yes. I, I, I suffer self-doubt, and I think, well, I just tell stories, big deal. But it's actually often the stories that hearten people to go out and continue doing that frontline work. So we have a role, we writers, and I'm dying to play it, and I have to earn money. Yeah. But, no, Laura, you're, you're 100% right on that. Um, I so agree with you that uh, we, pr- we provide... It may not be essential, but I think we're necessary. You mm. know what I mean? Um, because I think we provide that escape that if people didn't have it, then there'd just be really no point. You mm. know, there's a, there's an element of joy and escapism to what we what we do. And, the, uh, the subgenre I place most of my work in is hope punk. Which oh, oh, I love that. Is um, it was oh. uh. It was invented in a shit post by Elizabeth. Oh God, what is her name? Is Elizabeth Rowland, and she said, "Hope punk is the opposite of grim dark." And I'm going to actually, yeah. once I stop talking, I'm going to look her name up and make sure I get it right. Um, hope is hope punk is the opposite of grim dark. It's not the lonely hero goes off and saves the world. It's mm-hmm. it's not Aragorn. It's Frodo and Sam. Is her usual oh. example. I I would even go so far as to say it might be Merry and Pippin. True, right? True, but or or maybe maybe not quite that far. That's you know they're but, they're actually they could probably have been written out of the entire story and nobody would miss them. In terms of plot, no, that's true. They're very uh, no, extraneous. No, in terms of plot, 
in terms of plot, nobody would miss them, but they were, they're some of the most beloved characters though, aren't they? And that's, I find that, um, of course, I, you know, to me, Sam is the real hero. Absolutely. Um, it's of the Hobbit. So when I was in college, one of the things that, that one of the events I went to was a little like drawing room discussion on Lord of the Rings <laughs> and I love it. the professor who was leading it said, now what's the real love story in Lord of the Rings? It's Frodo and Sam. Yeah. And that, that I was 17 and it dropped my jaw because it, back in yeah. 1979, there weren't a lot of people yeah. talking in a normalized way about love between males. Yes, because even if it's, even if it's not sexualized love, right? Like mm. it's, it's still not done. Like, you know, bromance is used as that is used as a, as a joke, right? Mm, mm -hmm. When they, when they talk about that. And, but that was something I think Tolkien actually spoke about that, about um, when he was in uh, the war mm. about how that, the genuine camaraderie and the love between uh, you, you know, it's, it's a brotherhood. And it and, could have um, been romantic. Yeah. I mean, there's the, and it could have been too, who cares? Right. Like exactly. it was just beautiful. Their friend, their, their relationship regardless of what it was, was one of the most beautiful things I've ever witnessed. Mm. And, and just so much commitment and nobility. Yeah, there was, yes, you're right. There was a nobility to it. There was an honor, um, of each other an honoring of each other. And, um, yeah. So that's an example Absolutely of lovely. hope punk is the, the working together, small people doing big things. Um, mm -hmm. Those sorts of themes are what I absolutely love. Uh, yep. it, it, Hope Punk doesn't have to have a happy ending. In fact, often it doesn't. But there is always a sense that what you do matters. Yeah. Who you are, what you do, the choices you make matter. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me think, of course, that it is a very character-driven genre then, or subgenre. Uh, character and plot because the situation yeah. shapes the choices the characters make okay and alexandra roland uh so now we have her name right alexandra roland okay. um awesome and the point of well one of the points of hope punk is partly to tell a good story but also to to hearten people yep. who feel small who feel like what they do doesn't matter hope punk says it matters. You matter. Yeah. And I think, uh, I, I love that because, um, my sort of branding tagline, you know, cause like all the, we, we've talked before about all the, the shoulds that people say you should have. And, um, my, if I had to sum up what I do is I, I like to tell people that I, I write characters who are bent, but mm. not broken. Mm. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's, that's it too. I think that's, even though I can write some pretty dark stuff, hope is a, a such a huge element of what I do too. That um, I find this really fascinating. Yeah. I, I when I was between the ages of seventeen and twenty-one, when I was at, at college at uni in college, I couldn't quite figure out how it was that a story that was obviously fictional could still be true. And because I was studying biblical literature <clears throat> and I was recovering from from a literalist belief in the Bible that I jettisoned very soon after that point. But at that moment, I was wrestling with it. And I said, how can you be inspired by fiction? Because you can tell yourself, well, that's just a story. Yeah. It didn't really happen. It's just a story. Mm -hmm. And... Over the years, I came to realize that the, the story itself, the truth that is in a story, the story is a vehicle for the truth, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that the story isn't, that the story doesn't convey that truth. The, the, mm -hmm. the truth of what is in the story is how it applies to your, to your experiences, what yeah. you bring to that story, and you and the story together create the truth. Yeah, how it resonates with your reader. That's or how it resonates with you as the reader. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's uh, that's the importance of it right there. I think you hit the nail directly on the head. Um, that's the point. I absolutely love it when people get things out of my writing that I never put there. Oh my god! Like you know, I was an English major, and 
I, I would love things when we would talk about stuff like, what do you think the significance of the blue curtains were? And and I, I remember one day in my Victorian critique of the Victorian novel class, I said, the curtains were just freaking blue. Like, he was just describing the curtains. It has no <laughs> impact on the story. Trust me, because I've done the same thing. Like, it doesn't matter. But um, it, it was interesting because it was one of those things we were reading that very horrible story, Jude the Obscure. Mm. And um, have you read it? Not yet. I'm not a big oh. Thomas Hardy fan. Oh, oh, my God. Just save yourself the trouble and, I don't know, eat <laughs> I, I, something I, really horrible and it'll leave the same sensation. <laughs> and um, and I gave our, our prof a hard time for making us read it. But the one thing I took away from it, I, I said, you know, I find it very strange that Jude is a stonemason and he's trying so hard to get into Christchurch. And, and I'm like, so he's trying so hard to get into this school and he's literally the only thing that's keeping its walls standing, but they still won't let him within them. And the prof looked at me and his jaw dropped. And he, and I was so proud of myself because he said, nobody's ever brought that up before. He's like, that's never occurred to me before. And and I was just like, oh. <laughs> but, but it seems so obvious to me. So I think that's what you're saying, right? Is that so many things will just jump out to people. Mm-hmm that you never intended or, or maybe you did intend. And then somebody will come up to you and say, I really love that you did this. And you're sitting there going, I, I oh, thank you. That. <laughs> but okay. Thanks. <laughs> when I'm Let teaching writing, it. I will tell my students, make sure you have a reason for everything you put in there. If all you're doing mm-hmm. is describing the room, you better know why you're describing the room. Yeah. If the curtains are blue for a reason, you better know what the reason is. And it better not just be because it's cool. Because you probably know, but some of your listeners may not, about the concept of the Mary Sue, which is a, a character that's the the idealized author, uh, authorial insertion into the story. It's The story mm-hmm. suddenly becomes the author's daydream when they're bored because all these wonderful things happen and the main character can do no wrong. And, yeah. and a lot of beginning writers, when they're making a character they want to like make that character yeah. essentially flawless. Um, yeah. Princess of it's Mars the literary is literary equivalent of, of eating, t- chewing Be- on tinfoil. Beg your pardon? It's the literary equivalent of chewing on tinfoil. It's, yeah, it's pretty bad. If you've done that and you've got a filling, you'll, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. And what I tell my students, there's, there's online you can find 150 question list is, is your character a Mary Sue? But really there's only one question that you need to ask. And that is, why is the character doing that? Or why is the character that? And if mm-hmm. your answer is, because it's cool, you've got a Mary Sue. So mm-hmm. I guess my question for that, um, when you say a reason, though, I think just for the sake of distinction, the reason doesn't necessarily have to be thematic or archetypal or in any way. It could be just purely practical like with the curtains question, you know, like it's blue curtains because maybe it's X's favorite color or because yeah. it was on sale. Like mm-hmm. yes. it's, it's just. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. A reason is a reason is a reason is a reason. As mm-hmm. long as you know why that detail is in there. If you just stick it in because you, it, you thought you should, your writing is not going to be as, as clean and as sleek and as easy to get lost in. Hmm. extraneous detail a is boring and b often throws the reader out of the story because they'll roll their eyes and go oh god when is something going to happen but if you know why everything is in there you're able to make choices about whether it serves the story or not so it's prioritization as well Mm -hmm. uh most of writing is not frivolous to bring it back to lord of the rings for a second i think that's one thing that impresses me about tolkien's work Um, The fact that he's able to spend 20 pages uh, fleshing out the culture and life of the hobbits, but at the end of it, you're still still invested. You're still like, okay, what's happening to them? What's going on? Where does this this lead to? You're not saying, cool, they have fun dances. That means nothing to me. Like, there's still, you, it it still propels you along into the story. Because those details tell you about Mm -hmm. what hobbits are like as people. 
Yeah, and it was world building. Exactly. And, and it was done in a way that sucked you in mm -hmm. rather than tossed you out. And, and the, the purpose of world building is not... I'm, I'm, I, I, Dr. Laura E. Gooden, will now pontificate to you as to everything <laughs> about writing. The purpose of world building is not necessarily to create a cool, cool world. The purpose of world building is to constrain your characters so that they have meaningful choices because they have something to mm -hmm. lose. They have things they can and can't do. Um, if, if your character is on this idyllic world where it never gets cold and they never get hungry, then that's boring. They, they never have to go against their culture. Uh, they never have to go against their friends. They never have to be faced with the possibility of betraying their beliefs. And world building s exists to set up these limitations, these constraints on your character, so that they are in crisis. I love yeah. the idea of constraint um, as a way to create choice. Because um, it almost seems a little oxymoronic. Let me limit what you can do so you can have things to do. <laughs> um, but it does make sense, you yeah. know. Um, there's no choice if there's no boundaries. There's no game if there's no yeah. rules. Yeah, there's rules to every world. And one of the things that, that all those info dumps about hobbits do is they set up gentle, kind, home-loving people, one of whom now has to leave everything he loves, be not gentle, his kindness is put completely to the test because the ring is eroding it. All the things that are supposed to matter to him that you now know because of that info dump are threatened. I have spoken. <laughs> so be it. This is the way. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, one thing we did minorly touch on, which I think would be interesting to kind of dive into more, is... Um, the balance between having your story be character driven and be plot driven um how how to like make those mm. work together without one overly stating itself again it comes down to the crisis that the character is in uh plot is how you solve a crisis solve or resolve yeah, i'm a i'm a very character driven author and uh for me i mean um you know, plot is all the steps that are taken, but the story is really the challenge that is proposed to the character and how the character handles it and gets through it. Mm -hmm. But now some people would say that for them it's all about the story and then they they have this character that needs to, you know, get through it too. But right, most writers I know tend to be um, either plot or character driven. I mean sometimes you're you have to really be both mm -hmm. um but usually you lean a little bit more one way than the other and the way to know that is what what do you start with if nine times out of ten you start with a person then you're a character driven author if if you tend to start more with an idea of the world or the story then then you're more plot driven um but you know one's not necessarily any better than the other and a lot of people go back and forth yeah. Well, because they feed each other, right? Mm -hmm. They should. <laughs> they should. They should really work together so that it's all very, very seamless. But, you know, it doesn't always come together that perfectly. But especially for a nano opus where you're just basically squatting over the keyboard to see what comes out. And yeah, see, I don't that's uh, this was my first nano and I didn't um, I guess, too, with the benefit of, of having something that I'm actually contracted to do. Mm. Um, you know, there are some days I haven't written anything because I'm, I'm doing my plotting or I'm doing the minutia, you know, I'm mm -hmm. doing the research or whatever. And then some days I'll come in and I'll write six or 7,000 words and then I go off and do my thing again. Um, so, uh, it's not really, yeah, I guess though it, it is, isn't it? It didn't occur to me. I guess I don't think much about how other people handle it, but you're right. There are some people that are just in there just throwing stuff against the wall, racing for, you know, hell-bent for leather kind of thing, right? I've won a few times, one being obviously in air quotes. Um, and I don't, I, I tend to be an exceptionally slow and meticulous writer. And I come up with first drafts that are amazingly good. You know, they, they don't get changed much between first draft and publication mm -hmm. when I can write slowly. Yes. But when it's a nano, um, mud and glass, 
which was my second novel published, but my first novel finished, was a nano novel, and I basically just said to myself, "I'm, t- I, I cannot afford to care whether this is good. Yeah. I've just gotta, just gotta let it go, let it go." Let it. And uh, I came up with something that I cut a third of it before continuing on to the next fifty thousand mm. words of it. <laughs> Because I, it, it had just come out in a gush, yeah. and most of it, well, a third of it, I figured was crap. Uh, some people's nano percentages are far higher, that they end up yeah. with, you know, ninety percent crap. But okay, they I have a showed up writing for their book. arc. Yeah, that and that's the important part. I have a friend that's one of those people that can write a book practically every month. She's writing like a seventy thousand page book or seventy thousand word book. Yeah. Um, uh, pages wow uh <laughs> she's she's writing yeah seventy thousand words practically every month month and a half that's and, and a self-publishing well to your to yeah. your point laura you know um as someone who is now editing a podcast weekly post is great post is great <laughs> like y'all don't know how many times we mess up on this thing but you're never going to because i'm not gonna put it in um <laughs> yeah. i hope that goes in though Oh, that will. That one will. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think part of it is just the the ability to just say, let's let this be what it is, mm. and then we'll go from there. I, I remember mm. when Will and I uh, were getting ready to record the first episode, we were trying a couple, we were testing a few things out with, like, how the introduction would go, and eventually we were like, you know what, just, just screw it, press record, let's just do it. And that was the time it worked because we weren't getting held up with the perfection. Mm. We were just like, "All right, let's let." Yeah, we were just able to get out of our own this. head in a se- in a sense. Um. <laughs> and and that that kind of selflessness, that diminution, diminution. Yes, I'm a writer who speaks English as my native language. That smallifying of the self is an exhilarating feeling when it happens in a good way when it happens because what you're doing is focusing entirely on the art and you are you and your worries are not a part yeah. of that process that's one of the things nano does that is so incredibly valuable is it lets yeah. everybody get a chance to experiment with flow which is an experience that we don't have very no. often because we don't have time wow and mm. in, in Nano, a lot of people clear the decks for the entire month. They put food in the freezer for the family, and they shut the door. And, yeah, they, it's, it's yeah. I've taken care of all of this and all of that. And and some people even take time off work. Yeah. And Because and Thanksgiving comes in the middle of Nano, a lot of people get really stressed out because they can't do their Nano cave for a couple of days at Thanksgiving. Mm. Um, it all comes good in the end because... There's lots of reasons why people can still pick up from yeah. two. Oh my God, two days when I didn't write, um, and and actually that's valuable too, because you learn not to get judgy on yourself mm. when your schedule slips. I, I I started in good faith this month, and then five thousand things crumbled to dust in my hands, and I could not spend the month writing. It couldn't happen, and I could say, Oh, whoa, I'm a grim rimo and I a rimo is someone who does nano rimo nano rimos do nano <laughs> and I and, and and I started out as a grim nano cuz I wanted to prove a grim rimo cuz I wanted to prove I could really write yes, I wanted it was sorry. way way back in the beginning I wanted to prove I could get the words out I could pay I attention could to make, me I could do a big project <laughs> the cat is for the listeners the cat is wandering across Kate's screen and she's doing amusing things to subvert me subvert me <laughs> And, and it's, it's, I learned that sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, and that's going to have yes. to be okay. Yes. Your process is your process and you can't force it to fit the, you know, you shouldn't force it to fit some kind of constrictions of trying to write 50,000 words in a, in a month. I mean, I'm very fortunate in the fact that this is my full-time gig and uh, some years are better than others. Mm. Right. And, um, uh, so it's, I don't have to clear, you know, like I, you know, so 
Um, mm. it, it's funny in some ways because it's almost like every month is, is nano for me in some ways because chances are I'm trying to work on something. But it's not, I'm very fortunate in the fact that it's not something I'm desperately trying to just steal time for myself to, to do it. Like I, I, but I mm. belong to this group mm-hmm. and I've watched them and I'm like, oh my God, they're writing on weekends. I promised my husband, I don't know how many years ago that I would take weekends off. And even still, sometimes I still sneak off with a notebook, but yeah. he's just like, can we, can we please have, you know, can you just not work on weekends? And so I still try to to do that some or or spend some time with him before I go back to it you know we try to do something together every evening but it takes up an awful lot of my my brain well here's where we we intersect with questions of society is because why don't artists have value enough I mean, my the yeah. people who have read my books like them okay they're they're not crap and why do some of us, why are some of us given the opportunity to write for a living? Others of us mm-hmm. who are also producing quality work are not given that opportunity. Mm-hmm. What is wrong with society that does not value what writers do mm-hmm. or painters or dancers? No, it's true. And there's always like a or few any that of that. Seem to, why- yeah. Like I've always kind of just been mid-list. So, you know, I do okay. Um, I had a couple of years where I was doing really well. And I'll tell you what, I was writing romance. That's... Um, that's where the money is, um, and not because the publishers necessarily it's pla- not pay so much. It's high because art, but... if you if you get into romance, I mean, the the romance readers are voracious and um, and they read a lot. Like these are women <laughs> or men that read, you know, several books in the run of a week, maybe you know. So, um, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was yeah, feed the feed beast, the right? Beast. <laughs> and um, and I, the thing for me is I noticed a big change when I did some genre hopping. That's when my income took a nosedive. And, uh, and then mm-hmm. I had to kind of spin my wheels and catch up a bit and then go, okay. Because um, I still put relationships in everything I write because, I, you know, it's people and I'm mm-hmm. interested in that. So I'm like, okay, well now, note to self, when you do your self-publishing, make sure you're capitalizing on the fact that they're if there is a romance in there that you're, you're capitalizing on it because, um, you know, romance readers like, just like to read, they'll read thrillers, they'll read sci-fi, they'll read historical, they'll read contemporary. Mm-hmm. And, and as long as there's a little bit of human connection there, um, uh, they'll go for it. So if you can tackle that market, tackle it. Now, one of the, th- no, that's all I was going to say. If you oh, can, sorry. you know, tag your book with, you know, if there's romance in it, tag it. <laughs> one, of, one of the um, one of the things that distinguishes genre fiction from literary fiction is the fact that the audience is so mm-hmm. much a factor in the co-creation of Reader meaning of genre fiction. Fandoms, I mean, you know, uh, Jude the Obscure does not have a fandom, oh, and if it does, does I it's do not like not want to meet them. <laughs> oh my It's not a fandom; it's a closet. Oh. <laughs> Dark, abysmal. And what was it with the Victorians at the end of a book? Oh, if a woman wasn't married, she was dead. Right? But but because we as genre fiction writers are expressly seeking community with what Mm -hmm. we write, by what we write, um, one of the things that I have a lot of fun with in the mud and glass universe that I write in is that it's a fictional university and I get to make it (laughs) as bizarre and funny Mm -hmm. and inclusive and absorbing as I want. And one of the appeals of the Harry Potter books, and I know, like I said, we don't talk much about Joe Rowling these days, but one of the appeal of the Harry Potter books is not so much the characters or the plot, although that too, but the tourism. Yes. Everyone everyone wants to go and visit, and they want to be part of it. And that, that... in that meaning making that happens between the writer and the fandom is yeah. a distinguishing feature. I mean, and I think that's kind of where the crossroads <coughs> of Ad Nerdium exists and why we're doing what we're doing is we want to talk about that intersectionality between um, the work and the fans and society as a whole. Um, you know, there's an investment and like the point of NaNoWriMo and, you know, again, I mentioned this during our failed recording last time, but 
what, what I see nerdum being is a love of story. And that's why, Laura, it was so easy for you to convince me to do a whole month on NaNoWriMo because it was a month basically celebrating the writers, the storytellers who are giving us the ability to have these celebrations of story together. Hey guys, thanks for listening. We'll be right back with the rest of the episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Radio Free George SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Follow Adnerdium on Instagram and Twitter at AdnerdiumPod to keep up with the news about guests, upcoming episodes, and much more. Email us your questions at adnerdiumpod at gmail.com. You're listening to Adnerdium, to the point of nerdness. With what you're saying about the the world building, I, I've always been fascinated about how much of that is, how much of that is actually produced by the fan, and how much of that is produced by the author. Because it goes back to what you were saying before, <laughs> Kate, God. about those blue curtains. Um, how much of that meaning is yeah. actually just inserted after, you know? And with the J.K. Rowling universe, I mentioned it, I think, a couple of weeks ago with the wonderful Mary Sprague. Um, the fans are now saying, hey, this yeah. universe is ours. Yeah. It's not yours no more. We're going to take it. It's ours because we're the ones who actually brought it to where it is today. And that's almost like a Frankenstein's monster getting out or something, right? Like that's... Yeah. Well, it is. And because Joe Rowling's political beliefs have been revealed as problematic for many people, they are not abandoning the Potter, they're the Harry Potter her. universe. They're appropriating yeah. it. They're saying, "Screw you, lady." And, you know, they obviously. Yeah. This is ours. There's been fanfic from the beginning, but now it's it's defiant fanfic. <laughs> and I, the and fanfic's I like, Go taking over. I think for too long we've lived with that, like, oh, you can separate, you know, like I can like Roman Polanski's films and not like him. I'm like, okay, but you're giving Roman Polanski your money, and maybe not do that. But at the same time, like there, is, there does have to be some of that, and um, and so because so none of us is perfect, all yeah. of us have something that's going to piss somebody off. I mean, I'm Catholic. There are some people who would be, and justifiably so, very upset with me, mm-hmm. because I am associated with an institution that has done incalculable harm. But it's also done, you know, also good, and. There are some people who, who, if they know I'm Catholic, maybe would choose not to read my stuff. That just that's unfortunate. But yeah. all of us have something, and you got to make a balance and a trade-off. Every single con I've gone to for the last ten years, and I go to a lot of cons. Every single one has had a panel on what do you do when the person who creates the art you love is a jerk. But you, well, it's a problem that we are all wrestling yeah. with, in as fans, as consumers, as producers. Of, I of mean, nerdy art. It's it's a different. It's a spectrum, right? Because sometimes it is. They're just a jerk. It's just, man, that guy's an asshole. Like he's not actually like doing anything mm-hmm. systemically wrong. He's just, he's just a bit of a jackass. Yeah. And so it's yeah, like he just likes to abuse PAs for some reason. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, but there's something behind that, yeah. but I'm not clicking on it. It could be like. Anything from, like, you hear those stories about, like, you know, the friggin' green M&Ms uh, all the way up that, to... Ooh. Yes? Mm. I'll talk about the green M&Ms Oh, you mean because of the... Con- well, because Van Halen used to do it, wasn't it? Just make sure people were reading the contract. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing. Are they gonna... Are they gonna... If there's no green M&Ms, then, uh, now I gotta check every mic placement, every wiring... Every setting on the soundboard, I got to do all that because you didn't read the contract. You're not detail oriented. So the green M and M's actually had a meta purpose. Mm. They weren't. I'm being. I did not know that. They were. So yeah, the whole point of them was, this is my test for yeah. you. Will you pass my test? If there's green M and M's, I can relax because not only do you read details, you abide by yeah. details. And I think that's the difference between somebody who's just wanting to make sure it's done right and a diva, right? Because the diva is going to have be asking for more than just green M and M's. 
Yeah. Or not. I mean, they yeah. could also. Oh, yes, that just could be their thing. Then they're going to ask for somebody <laughs> to feed them the green M&Ms. Or... Mm, there you go. Yes. <laughs> Peel yep. them. Peel, Peel the me M&Ms a green M&M. Me, please. Shuck this M&M for me, will and if you? They... Be a good lad. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you would be doing, right? And, and if they don't see the green M&Ms, they're going to be a lot more mad and, and like probably cause, might pos- possibly even cause harm by just like a fury of anger where I'm imagining in that... Uh, van halen situation it's just going to be a bit of disappointment let me go make sure everything's okay yeah because of course they don't have to do it themselves they got roadies to do that right but it has to be done and they have to see that it's done and they can't relax now and it's a pain in the ass when you're trying to you know you've got because i think you know this comes back to the undervaluing of an artist because people go oh musicians they're stupid or they're whatever right oh it's just they're just a musician you know, it's like, like, come on, drummers. How many drummer jokes have you heard in your lifetime, right? Poor drummers get <laughs> crapped on. And it's the same thing with writers. We're undervalued because people think what we do is easy. Because it's fun. Yeah. Maybe it's kind of poppy. And it's always just a song you can sing along to. It's not like you're a brain surgeon. Oh, all you did was write a book where some people do a lot of kissing. And uh, I could do that. <laughs> and that. And that's usually when I issue the invitation. Oh, you try it. Go for it. See how far you get. Well, also, the writers, too, have, have their request for green M&Ms that they don't even know they've yeah. got. They don't even know they're asking for green M&Ms in the contract. But when they see bad grammar, when they see Mary Sue characters, when they see yep. uh, extraneous plot elements, when the moment they get bored, those are all green M&Ms that they didn't yep. get. So we, the writers, have to read the contract. And there's a phrase, contract with the reader, and it has been taken to mean when there's a dragon on the cover, the reader wants a certain kind of book and you better Mm -hmm. deliver. If it starts out funny, it can't end sad. If it starts out sad, it can't end funny. Um, I think all of that is is horse poop. Because if it's a well-written book, that's the contract with the Mm -hmm. reader, not whether it conforms to their tropes and expectations. I was going to say, if if a story can't start funny and end sad, someone should tell Shakespeare. Right. Um, there are certain expectations, though, and, and we and we did talk about this in the failed um, in the failed recording that um, you know there are certain things that within a genre sometimes that you can't do. Like within a romance novel, you can you know if if you have to have them end up together, there has to be a happy ending. If there isn't, you're going to have a you know your book's going to get burned. Um, you know, a mystery. You have to you have to solve the crime that that kind of thing mm-hmm. and it's um there are certain some genre fiction where you know thrillers they expect uh the main character to be in peril at some point they expect suspense you know um so there are certain things certain covenants you can't break but mm-hmm. everything else is up for grabs i think and so you can break that covenant if you're willing to pay the price for breaking it yeah which is you won't get your normal readers, but you might get different. Well, readers. and you might, but you might not get another contract if you're traditionally published. Yeah, that's that's the pragmatic you know, side. Might not yes. sell. Yeah, and then that follows you around. Well, that's why you put the stuff that breaks the covenant. You put that in your Patreon. Yes. Or your self-published work. Yeah. Your indie work or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, when John Cusack said years ago that uh, it was a long time ago that he would make a film for himself and then one that he figured would be commercially successful and, you know, Mm. do your trade off. It goes back to that conversation again, though, about like the devaluing of art for art's sake Um, that I've heard, like, I've heard that a lot from different artists about, all right, well, what do you want to do and what's going to make you money? And now you have to pick. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it, there, there is a bit of a disparity in that because, if we're going to talk about accessibility, if you have wealth already, you are afforded a luxury that others are not given. The ability to explore for exploration's sake. And mm. we often will then accredit you for being some sort of genius. Mm. Um, just simply because you came for money. Like, there's way too many celebrities right now who are family members of or related to other celebrities or rich mm. people. You know, the the sons of billionaires or, Mm -hmm. you know, old, wealthy industry tycoons becoming, you know, top anchors on different new shows or like rave reviewed actors. Mm. But it was really because they had the money to. 
and it wasn't necessarily that their skills was, were any better or greater. They're good at what they do. But they didn't have the boundary to prevent people from seeing the work they did on their own terms was just as valuable. Mm. I think there's something too about the fact like you notice that um, in the arts there are some there, there is that imbalance. I'm sorry, my phone is ringing. Let me just turn that ringer off. Um, that uh, musicians can make an awful lot of money. Actors can make an awful lot of money. There are very few writers who make that kind of money that, uh, like, say, Tom Cruise can command. And there are very few painters, but you might be able to get, like, some big bucks for, like, one project or something like that. And I, I, I do have to wonder when painting and writing, which used to be the more noble <laughs> of the arts, and it was, oh, you're not going to trod the boards, you'll be a harlot, you know, that kind of thing, uh, when all of a sudden the, th that got switched around. Because it used to be that, yeah. Or did it? Maybe harlotry became maybe highly it did, valued, right? <laughs> maybe it's because, I think that's, like, that's you it. know, maybe if I was as pretty as Brad Pitt, I'd sell more books. I don't know. It's. I think it's more the transgressive nature of acting that it, it's, it's always been seen as something people not quite are kind to do, but will rock up to see it. Yeah. And there's a, there's a transgressive element to being an actor. Yeah, because you're visual. That... Yeah, yeah it, it's it's because you're visual. It's because you're physical. Yes. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's the physicality. It's of an it in-your-faceness. Because music, because and musicians acting. tend to have the, there's the physical element of that you can go and watch them. If somebody came to watch me and write, it'd be not only that, but the art itself is highly physical. Yeah. You're you're using your body in a way that was originally quite confronting. Yeah. Which is why women weren't allowed on stage. Is because acting is a physically involved, physically confronting thing to do that can be off-putting mm. if you feel squeamish about your body or anyone's body. Um, the, the exercises actors do to prepare and to learn to act and to get ready to, to warm up and all that stuff are embarrassing to watch if you're not an it's actor. It's funny. <laughs> it, like, oh my God. Like... It's it, it's a trip to just watch that. And I've been involved in enough theater as a playwright, director, and producer, because I'm nobody's actor, um, that I have been on the edges of watching these people literally embody my words with their literal bodies. And it's a highly intense process. Uh, every rehearsal is exhausting. Um, and to have that out there is is... It can be unnerving for people. And it's that transgressive element. God knows what an actor will do. I mean, even if you're, as Australians say, out on the piss with a bunch of actors, out going out drinking with a bunch of actors, God knows what they'll do. And it's just, it's, it's, it's something that is highly attractive to non-actors. And that's what brings the money, yeah. I think. There's a, there's as, a more I, direct social element to it, too. Um, mm. That, you know, when you're, it is communal, theater, music, um, performing arts, there is that kind of ingrained in it, a deep sense of ritual yes. mm. that I think people crave, um, that physical connection, you know, because this, like, I, it's less about, I would say, for the actors and for the musicians, they, they can create good work, but you're paying them their personality especially in the age of social media mm. you know it's it's celebrity it's celebritism it's not necessarily mm. you know art yeah <laughs> as as good as the things that they can produce are it's them not the work mm. itself which i think is different in writing and painting because when by the time it gets to you the creation is removed. The creator is mm. removed. There's no process to it that you can actually see, that you mm. can, that you can connect with. And you and can. That's that again. That's why fandoms distinguish genre fiction from other fiction, because fandoms keep that connection going. Mm. And it's writers who have fandoms who are stinking rich yes. because of that connection. It's that connection that earns the yeah. money. That's it, it, that's it, where connection the money earns comes money. From. Yeah. 
you know like and i think that's that's part of the issue is there what you're saying about the devaluing of the art i i I would say there is just so much more of an entry barrier that the reason why the good works can get missed with some and missed with others is because success in today's day and age is really especially for creators is defined by community and building that quote-unquote fandom for the nerds Mm -hmm. or a following you know it's why instagram influencers or tiktok influencers can get millions for posting eight second videos of them dancing Mm. or lip-syncing other people's work (laughs) like their creation while it works and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna knock them their creation is entirely built on other people's works mm-hmm. yet it's their brand their sense of community that make mm. them the millions i th- exactly i think there's also so i'm so lonely. depressed i now. think there's a... <laughs> that's a mood can we go back to oh, talking about death cat. that was much cheerier <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I was going to say that I think there's also a sense of passivity to it um, for musicians and actors to consume their art. You just have to be paying attention. Uh, you don't have to flip pages. You don't have to search for meaning. It's kind of there for you and you can think about mm-hmm. it uh, while it's there. There's this perception that like, reading a book is more effort than watching a movie yeah Mm. which it is it definitely is because there's a lot more mental work into going into uh imagining what's happening instead of having it be right in front of your eyeballs you don't have to do eyeballs just catching the image you don't have to do as much yeah uh the middle ground on that is that audio drama is really taken off Exactly. Yes. Like the um, old, it, they're like, uh, like there's so many podcasts now are like the old radio plays, right? Exactly. It's, fa- it's fabulous, but I find that so interesting that that's come back, and and it's something that's getting more recognized now. Like the um, the voiceover uh, actress who did the audio for my book, What Unbreakable Looks Like, just won an award for it, which was oh wow, I know, it was so cool. And what was great is because I pipped her. Right, they gave me a choice of a couple of actors, and and I picked her because she sounded the most like the character to me when she spoke. And yeah, now she's she's won an award for for her portrayal of my character. Cool. And I'm like, I'm really gonna have to go listen to it now. And um, <laughs> which is you know, but you get it because you know, like I'm gonna be listening to my words and I'm gonna be cringing. Well, that's the thing when you collaborate when 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 my plays get performed, for example. It's like sending your children out in the park to play with strangers. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Well, if you ever need someone to read a book and I sound like the character, I'm I'm unionized, so okay. <laughs> let me know. Yeah. Sure. Problem is you're unionized and so we'd have to bloody pay you, wouldn't we? <laughs> there is that. But apparently there's good, I think so, there's good money in it, Patrick. It's something you should probably look into. I mean, I have been thinking of investing in a better a better setup, a better mic. Um, this one was like 40 bucks, not even for the whole stand and cables and everything. So I'm on my wish list if I can save up as like an actual, like good condenser mic. Uh, I, one of the other topics we spoke about in our forgotten episode, our lost episode. The lost tapes. <laughs> the lost tapes. You guys, it was some good stuff. I like, know. I, we I'm had some really lost. good. Uh, anyway. Can you not mine them for anything? And the first half was there. We've got like the first 20 minutes. So maybe like we could just release that yeah. separately and just be like, this is what we were, the where we were going. And then everything just crapped out. It'll be um, in the director's cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, we're going to be releasing three extended edition <laughs> movies. Um, <laughs> for a plot. And then that we're going to is... rewrite the entire story from the yeah. point of view of one of the minor characters. <laughs> And Han's going to shoot first. So to wrap up, (laughs) um, one of the things that we talked about 
was uh, gatekeeping, and I think we had a very wonderful conversation mm-hmm. about the boundaries. And I think we talked a lot about different sorts of boundaries, mostly for the artist. Um, but I am I am interested with both of you together, um, our esteemed guests and my esteemed co-host, um, to have a more in-depth conversation about gatekeeping in the nerd world. Um, especially when we talk about NaNoWriMo being a space that is trying to combat that and being an open and welcoming and community-oriented space. Hmm. Yeah, but still a space that's trying to tell you you need to write 50,000 words in a month. I think that's only one (laughs) restriction, though. Like, that's not terrible. Yeah, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I need... I have to interject here. (laughs) They never say you have to. Devil's advocate. They only say, give it a go. So it's the difference between when a professor says this is a required event or this is, quote unquote, strongly encouraged. <laughs> Which I, I if, if it's not required, I ain't showing up. No. I've had conversations with them. Professor's been mad at me. And it's like, look, I got time, very little of it. So I'm spending it the way I can. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. But yeah, there are there are always people who will want to feel like they are safeguarding what they love. And there are also people who will feel like they want to be important to the people who think what they love is important. Those are the ones who stand up at cons and say, it's not really a question, more of a comment. <laughs> sit down. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's never about the thing that they love. It's about their perceived relationship to the thing that they love Uh, like writing is not going to suffer if a bunch of people write reams of crap in november no writing itself the the platonic essence of writing actually benefits from that because it normalizes writing it it normalizes uh showing up for your art uh there's some wonderfully irreverent groups on Facebook, shitposting groups on Facebook that, that whenever a gatekeeper shows up, out the airlock. That's it. Yep. And I love that irreverence. I love the lack of gatekeeping. I love the feeling that what I love is strong enough that it doesn't need gatekeepers. But to feel that way about what you love, you have to feel strong enough to let what you love be threatened or what you perceive as being mm-hmm. threatened. It usually isn't being threatened, quite frankly. But people are scared. People are uneasy. Mm-hmm. People are anxious. People feel small. Yeah. And gatekeeping is a way to not feel small because you're doing something important. You're protecting what yeah. you love. And that's within the fandom. And then within, um, but then within publishing, you have so many gatekeepers too. Like the editors or the marketing people who are telling you you can't, no, you can't write this. You can't. You know, um, you know, with all the inclusion and inclusivity, you know what I'm saying? All the inclusivity that's happening today. Post editing. That's happening today. (laughs) But I remember 15 years ago being told I couldn't write a non-white hero in, in my romance. And this was by an editor who was not white. And it was that readers don't want that. And I think now we're, we're seeing just how much readers do want that. And there's always been this, like, no, this is what readers want. And no, you don't, unless you're actually going out and asking them, you don't know what readers want. You're telling them what they want by limiting what you offer them. And I mean, there, I mean, there are some things, I mean, they do, they did see in romance that a a stupid amount of, and by stupid, I mean, just impossibly silly, not actually dumb amount of books sell if there's Duke in the title. And I think that's just more of the the kind of like that millionaire fantasy kind of thing more than it being actually like, you know, that there's something special about Dukes, but um, there's, you know, there's always something that we're being told we can't do or that, you know, this genre is dead or, um, you know, you can't write about vampires anymore. And it's like, I'm sorry, vampires are are never dead. And I think in the last uh, time we talked, I said, well, technically they are, (laughs) but vampires are dead, but they're the, the genre, the, the subject of vampires are never vampires never go out of vogue. People just get tired of seeing so many of them. But a great mm-hmm. vampire story 
is always going to be, um, you know, accepted. Um, I think that was part of it too, is that at least with indie stuff, um, and with nano, you know, cause you can, you can just write whatever you want. Uh, and the same with indie, you know, some of these little niche markets that wouldn't survive in publishing or wouldn't even get a chance in the traditional market are, are finding their audience. And, um, that's a wonderful thing. They're getting around the gatekeepers. And uh, I think mm. that's pretty awesome. Well, as you point out, those very boundaries that, for example, the, the seemingly rigid boundary between fantasy and science fiction that publishers insist on is itself an artifact of publishing. It's not an artifact of the books themselves. If you go back to the 1880s, you'll find plenty of books that mash them up. Yep. And they sold like hotcakes. But it's easier to sell books if they have constrained tropes and predictable uh, characteristics. If they can be easily classified and marketed. And that makes them easily sold. And that's that's a gatekeeping decision. Not in terms of value, but in terms of ease. Mm. I think there's another thing I've noticed that um, from listening to both your episodes it seems like NaNoWriMo is helping to combat uh, is this idea of unintentional gatekeeping of a gatekeeping of skill or product where it's uh, where it's like, well, why would I even try to do that? I'm never going to be as good as Tolkien. And mm. that doesn't matter. You don't have to be, you don't have to write the next Lord of the Rings. What you write will still be valuable. Well, and We don't um, want the next Lord of the Rings. I mean, Tolkien exactly. already did that. We Got want one. what you do. And, um, um, well, you know, and self-censorship, yes, is it is is a terrible yeah. thing in writing. It's a it's a terrible form of gatekeeping. It's the most insidious and it's the most tragic. Because things never even exist when people censor themselves, when people gatekeep themselves. Yeah. And I think, I think NaNoWriMo in its idea of just someone posting on a forum, hey, I wrote... 30 pages today and everyone being like yeah that's awesome like just the flood of encouragement keeps it from being it doesn't have to be amazing by someone else's standards as long as you did it it'll be amazing to someone even if it's it's amazing you even did it yeah well this has been a very fun exploration uh i could i think i can say for both will and i exploring the world of NaNoWriMo and getting to talk with some excellent friends and writers about the process. We are pretty much at time, a little over, but I think that's okay. Uh, We had some great conversation, and, you know, when we do our extended edition, we'll give you the lost 20 minutes or so that survived from our failed attempt. Well, thank you, everybody, for watching this episode of Ad Nerdium. As always, please subscribe to the Radio Free George SoundCloud and Spotify to stay up to date on the latest episodes. If you want to keep track of the latest Ad Nerdium news, give us a follow over at Instagram and Twitter at Ad Nerdium Pod. If you have questions for us, say for the stasis chambers so we can ask our wonderful guests, send us an email at adnerdiumpod at gmail.com. As always, this is Patrick. This is Laura. This is Kate. And this is Will. Signing off. Live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs>